you know, it's sort of like a stand-up comedian showing up somewhere and you're like, okay, man, you know, bring the funny. Like, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm expecting you to be funny. Like, you better deliver, right? And, and you know, not obvious is kind of a promise like that. It says that I'm going to share ideas that you haven't heard. I'm Matthew Kimberley from MatthewKimberley.com and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy at ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest always listens first and then speaks. His passion is sharing non-obvious advice to help brands and leaders be more influential. He does this through keynote speeches, published books, and strategic advice. He's the author of books like Lycanomics, Personality Not Included, and Non-Obvious, which is a Wall Street bestseller. He's also a professor at Georgetown University in marketing. I'm delighted to welcome Rohit Bhargava from rohitbhargava.com. Welcome, Rohit. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be chatting with you. Awesome. So, Rohit, we're going to talk today about influence and how to build influence. Let's start talking about why you think it's so important to be an influencer in today's very information overloaded environment and why it's such an important competitive advantage. Well, I mean, I think that uh, we sometimes have a mistaken idea of who's an influencer and who isn't. And so I think the first thing I would say is I think we're all influencers Great point. in certain situations, right? Um, and so the same person who's an influencer for me in my family or friend circle, if I'm buying a digital camera because they happen to know about that, is not the same person that I'd ask if I was buying a car or running a marketing strategy. So you know, I think that the, the premise of the question, which is why is it important to understand who is an influencer and how to reach them, I think is the, is the huge question if you think about it from a marketing point of view because yep. the influencers are sometimes not who you expect. And I think mm. I've seen a lot of – wasted energy trying to reach people who are sort of influencers, but not necessarily influential for the thing that you are trying to talk about. Fantastic point, Rohit. I completely agree with you. I really like how you reframe the question because the question was probably not quite correct. It was asking, what's the importance of being an influencer rather than how do you identify an influencer that's relevant to the decision you're trying to make? If you're looking to buy a car, then the influencer is going to be very different to somebody who's looking to find a good doctor or something like that. Yeah, look, I mean, I think here's a perfect example, right? If you look at uh, celebrity Twitter accounts, right? People who are uh, Hollywood stars, and they've got you've seen these accounts where they have like 1.2 million followers and yep. they follow like 70 people. Yeah. Right. But if you look at the 70 people that they follow, of course, they follow like CNN and other celebrities. But then there's always like that one or two people who are like nobodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like six Hollywood stars all follow them because maybe they're like the agent that right. works with all of them or they're like the yeah. producer that's worked with all of them. Like that person even though that individual maybe has a, a total of 183 followers, of those 183 followers, they have these mega superstars who are yeah. their followers. And yeah. so you, know, you think about that person and like the normal metric that all these social media analytics would refer to of, is this person an influencer? Well, no, because they only have 183 followers. Mm. Yet, if you look at who those followers are, you'd say, yeah, this person's hugely influential. Now, that's a great point. You've touched on a very important point, and that is engagement and quality of the people that you're influencing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it challenges us to think a little bit more broadly about uh, who influencers actually are and what they what they really care about instead of just quantifying them into a spreadsheet and saying this person has X number of Twitter followers and therefore they're influential. Yeah. So talk to us a bit more about that, Rohit. How does one identify these hidden diamonds in a sea of people that could potentially appear like the next person but actually are very powerful influencers? Well, I think that the the number one way is by finding or being someone who's part of a community and therefore knowing who these influencers are. I mean, I remember back in 2004 when I first started blogging Mm -hmm. and realizing that the people who were blogging at that time was such a small, closed ecosystem that if you wanted to get something in front of the top 10 tech bloggers – if you were a blogger yourself, you probably knew them and had seen them at an event. Right. So it was super easy to figure out who the influencers are because we all knew each other. Yeah. And if you look at ecosystems of networks and how networks expand, and this is not just about social media and blogging. This is just about networks in general yeah. of people who know each other and, and who knows you, not necessarily who knew you know, but who knows you, yeah. which is one form of, of influence, right? Because we look at those people and we say, well, these people are connected mm-hmm. to all those other people. And the big things that happen in your life, you know, meeting your, your wife, uh, getting a new job, you yeah. know, those come from that second level of uh, connections, right? Those, mm-hmm. those uh, loose ties as, uh, you know, as they're called by social psychologists, yeah. weak ties, yeah. right? Cool. Well, that's great. So being part of a community or being part of a closed network is a great way to get the inside scoop and to get an understanding of who the non-obvious influencers are, which actually brings us to a great point, and that is about your book, Non-Obvious. So could you... Nice segue. Sorry? Yeah, nice segue. (laughs) So could you talk to us a little bit about that and how a listener can use those principles to reach out to these people who are the non-obvious influencers. Yeah, I mean, to me, the idea of non-obvious is trying to see the world in a way that other people aren't mm-hmm. and saying something unique. Yeah, And so I put a lot of pressure on myself, I think, with that title because now it's like, you know, it's sort of like a stand-up comedian showing up somewhere and you're like, okay, man, you know, bring the funny. Like, yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm expecting you to be funny. Like, you better deliver, right? And, and you know, non-obvious is kind of a promise like that. It says that I'm going to share ideas that you haven't heard. And so immediately when people start reading it, they're like, have I heard this before? Is this Mm. new? And I think that, you know, for me, what I advocate in order to think in a non-obvious way is to really focus on the intersections. And to me, intersections are about this idea that uh, if you go outside of your industry Mm. and if you find combinations of interesting things that are happening across multiple industries and draw some sort of tie between them, you end up with bigger, broader, more universal ideas as a result. A lot of times when we think about like trends, for example, and people love trends. I mean, who doesn't like to read what the top five trends are, right? Yeah. Uh, But we always look at trends in our industry. Most people do. And they say, well, okay, I work in financial services. So what are the top five trends in financial services? And instead, what I try and and go around the world really teaching people and, and advocating that people do is go outside of that, take your blinders off a little bit, you know, buy magazines that aren't targeted towards you and, you know, step outside of yourself yeah. uh, because the ideas that you can get from that and then bring back can be really powerful. 
Two people that come to mind straight away when you talk about intersections. One is Steve Jobs, who was famous for doing this. And in fact, the whole idea of Apple and computers was, in his own words, the intersection of computers or technology and the humanities. And that is why Apple touched on such a incredible niche, which no other computer company had been able to do and probably hasn't been able to do since. The other person that comes to mind is the person who works closely with Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. And he reads very widely and he knows everything about everything and has been able to bring those principles across into investments. And that's why Warren Buffett relies on him so heavily when it comes to making decisions. So couldn't agree more. I think that's a great way to approach the world, not thinking in such a linear way, but thinking a little bit more laterally and combining ideas that don't naturally meld and seeing what you come up with. Yeah, I think sometimes it's also the idea that you have to be willing to capture ideas and have a way of returning to them when they may be meaningful. Because a lot of times you'll find an idea or an article or a story or something that comes across your path and it's not necessarily useful in that moment when you find it. Yeah. And so you know, I spend a lot of time figuring out how to capture these things to save them for later. I use post-it notes. I rip things out. I keep them in a folder. I mean you know, I have a lot of visual ways right. to return to ideas because – I think that in order to be a uh, what I call a trend curator, you know, an idea yep. collector, um, you have to be able to save things, return to them, aggregate them together. That's really the whole process. I mean, that's really what I talk about um, in the book, which is how do you become good at at saving these things, categorizing them, and then returning to them and, and seeing where those connections fit. A great tool to do this is the Pocket app, which I find quite useful. It just allows me to save articles online on various devices. I also use Notes. I use Evernote, although I'm not a great fan of Evernote because organized information in Evernote is not the greatest. But I use just the Notes app on my iPhone as well, which synchronizes across all the devices. I must confess, though, I'm guilty of one thing, and that is not going back and looking at the information that I have curated. That is the... Um that's the problem with a lot of these digital tools, you know, because they are, um, it's sort of like paying somebody else to wash your car, yeah. you know, like at the end of the day, your car's clean, yeah. but you didn't do it yourself. Yeah. And next time you want to clean your car, you got to go back and get somebody else to do it because yeah. you're just used to not doing it. Yeah. And so for me, like I physically save these things. I mean, I print okay. them out. Even when I find stuff online, wow. I'll print it out. I'll take notes by hand. And so at the end of the year when I'm compiling my annual trend report, because I do this every year, right? Yeah. Um, and I have for the last six years. And then in January, I release a new report with 15 brand new trends. Yeah. So my process is an annual process. And so I collect information throughout the year. Wow. And then at the end of the year, I'll go back to all of these things. I'll spread them out and I'll start to physically move things around. And I find wow. a lot of value in uh, the the analog way of doing that. I mean, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a digital guy. I've been yeah. working in the internet for, you know, since 1997, back when I lived in Australia, in fact. You know. Yeah, I know you did, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, since then, uh, I've also appreciated the fact that sometimes we need to print things out and handwrite things down, yeah. and, and that is a great way to sort things. Well, I interviewed a guy called Taki Moore, who's based here in Sydney, and he's in the online space as well, and he talks about the going analog as well. In fact, I attended an event last weekend that he ran, and it was completely analog. He said, 
don't bring your computers with you. And that was actually a very smart move as a presenter because there were less distractions. We just had a folder and we physically wrote in the folder. So there's definitely something to be said for going analog. There's less interruptions. There's less of yeah. these notifications popping up on your screen. Actually, I'll show you what I... So this is what I use, right? These are the notebooks. And it's just like a pocket size. It kind of looks like a passport. So it's a non-obvious notebook. It's actually a branded notebook. Yeah, it's a branded notebook. So, yeah, there you go. And, um, yeah, and then uh, inside it's got like a little guide to note-taking. So oh, you, know, awesome. you kind of see that, like, you know, yeah. there's tips. And I use, like, little, these little boxes and things right. like that. And, yeah, so the idea is, like, I'm trying to teach people. So I use these in workshops and things. And the idea is you can always have this on you. fits into a suit jacket pocket um, or, you know. Uh, can we purse. buy this in Australia? Um, so you can't buy this anywhere, actually. It's oh. only for uh, – right now it's only for um, people who do the workshops. Because I was going to uh, say I can put a link in the show notes, but that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm working on uh, I'm working on releasing these and then there's also like a, a concept for sort of more of like a, a workshop in a box type of thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm working this year on developing that and it might be kind of like a – almost like a board game. Um, cool. So, Sounds know, like fun. Shh, that's coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> Probably shouldn't okay. have said it on a podcast if it was a secret, but whatever. You probably shouldn't have. I'm happy to edit it out if you want. No, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> Consider it like a sneak sneak preview. Sneak right? preview. Okay, cool. Now, another thing I want to ask you is you've been involved in some really very big marketing companies like Ogilvy and so on. Did you use this analog approach even when you were working in these large corporates? I think I started. I started using it there. And actually, my intent was a little bit different at that point. Um, I was still sort of saving ideas in this way, uh, I think. But oftentimes, I would do it in the with the intent of turning it into a blog post. Right. Uh, and at that time, when I was building my blog, I was blogging maybe three, four times a week. Okay. And then I went to like you know maybe once a week. Then I went to like maybe once a month. And then like last year, I I think I blogged like fourteen times all year. Right. Um, and now I'm revisiting that and changing the process around. And so now I have like a brand new weekly curated list of insights. And so I'm basically taking this whole method and I've developed a weekly newsletter, which will then translate onto the blog where I share the top five, five or six stories from that week, uh, the past week, along with a quick take on what it means for marketers and business people. And so that's kind of a new thing that I've just launched. And that's getting some really good feedback now because I'm taking this whole process and instead of waiting a whole year, yeah. uh, I'm actually sharing the insights in more real time. Cool. I'm a big fan of blogging, actually. I was trained to write personally by John Morrow, who's a, a writer that I really respect. He's from Copyblogger, and I did quite a lot of guest posting and had a lot of success with it. But like you, it sort of fell to the wayside because I got so busy with the podcast and running the business. And writing a good quality blog post takes a lot of effort and time, at least 10 to 12 hours, yeah. in my opinion. Yep. And so, you know, it's more a labor of love now than anything else. But it's very quick when it comes to list building if you write good quality content. I remember the longest I ever worked on a single blog post in terms of research and developing it and putting it all together was 14 hours. Wow. And, um, and it was almost straight. Like, I didn't even take a break. And wow. the reason for it was uh, the Simpsons movie came out. Oh, yes. And I decided that I wanted to do a compilation of every single marketing campaign that was sort of doing something with the Simpsons movie. And so there was like a 7-Eleven, a which is like a, a kind of quick gas station type yeah. of store. I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember if they're in Australia. I don't think they are. But 
Seven uh, Elevens, yeah, they are. They are. Oh, they are. Yep, okay, yep. right, cool. Um, so uh, they did a takeover where they turned that into a Quickie Mart, which is yep. the thing from The Simpsons, right? Yeah. And so that was one, and they had all these other ones, and I compiled them all, and I had images of everything, and I put it all in there, and um, the thing cool. like went super viral. I think it got quoted by like the Globe and Mail in Canada. Wow. Um, I think like maybe even the Sydney Morning Herald had like a little link to it or something. So cool. um, I worked really hard on it <laughs> and I got some good, you know, got some good uh, linkage. It does take effort. I mean, if you want to write content that really stands out. I don't do that anymore. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's, uh, I, it's been a while since I did a post like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. You, but that's what it takes to write a good, really good quality post. So yeah. let's talk about how you help brands and leaders increase their influence through the techniques we've been discussing. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of pieces to it. I mean, for me, um, being that now I do so much public speaking and workshops, a lot of it is tailored around specific concepts that were in books. And we've talked a bit about non-obvious and the whole idea of like learning to predict the future. So that's the the, the actual topic of the talk and the workshop, which is how to predict the future. And that's kind of the skill set that I'm teaching people. Okay. But, you know, to your point about influence, my book before that was called Lykonomics. Yeah. And Lykonomics was all about this idea that we choose to do business with people that we like. Yes. And uh, brands that we like. Mm-hmm. And what does it take to be more likable, mm-hmm. um, to be more trustworthy? Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, I used the term likable, but the idea of the book was – uh, really about trust, which is why do we trust some people and not others? Mm-hmm. Why do we trust some brands and not others? Yeah. And a lot of it is about what you do with the trust once you earn it. So if you have trust, then you can be influential. Mm-hmm. Um, you can influence people. If you don't have that trust, then you don't have the platform to be able to be influential. So you know, really, I think what I landed on with that book and with all the research I had put into that was this idea that influence is the output of trust once you have trust. Uh-huh. So are you saying that once you have trust, you need to continue proving yourself and retain that trust as opposed to just earning trust, which you know people talk about the no like and trust model. What I'm hearing you saying is it's not enough just to earn the trust. You have to keep the trust. Trust is um, something that you can lose through your actions. Yeah, You don't usually lose it through inaction, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like, uh, it's not like getting a subscriber to your email list where like if you don't email them for a year, they might be like, screw it, I'm not going to be a subscriber anymore. You know, trust doesn't really work like that. Yeah. Um, but I do think that once you earn trust, you can certainly lose it through your actions. And so to me, I think that the maintenance of trust is really about reputation, which is are you going to do what you said you were going to do? Are you keeping your promises? Yeah. Are you delivering? Um but, you know, in a lot of cases, like once you've built up a certain level of trust, I mean, if you think about uh, people in your life who are old friends, mm-hmm. who you maybe haven't been in touch with for a really long time, yeah, uh, but you still have a level of trust there because right. it's not like they've broken the trust. It's mm-hmm. just you're not really in the same phase of life or you just don't talk to each other as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's necessarily something you have to maintain. I do think that you have to be um, conscious of not doing something to lose it or to break it. As Buffett says, you know, he won't even lose a shred of reputation. That's something that is of great concern to him. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some of the biggest challenges you've noticed when it comes to building influence and continuing to grow it in this today's information overloaded environment. Well, I think uh, you sort of hit on it as part of the question. Noise 
is a barrier to uh, scale. Yep. And I think that when you consider the fact that there's so many places that we could give our attention to, mm. uh, trust alone isn't necessarily enough. Um, and in fact, sometimes trust can be replaced by some things that media has gotten really good at using, like shock yeah. or awe or curiosity. Sensationalism, you know, which yep. don't, yeah, sensationalism, which don't necessarily require trust. They yeah. just require piquing your interest. Or they exploit the fear in us, right? That's yeah. what the media does a lot. Right. I mean, it's, it, well, it's, it's fear, it's um, titillation to some degree, right? Yep, I mean, yep, it's like too, those yep. articles where, like, I'm not afraid to see what a childhood celebrity looks like today. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when that article says, see what they look like today, I'm like, that's kind of curious. Like, okay, yeah. I want to know what do well, they look it's like. It's kind of today, like they're right? hitting at your lizard brain, isn't it? They, they're kind of trying yeah. to jar you out of your stupor or your... You know, yeah. they're trying to stand out because you have so much information coming at you. Most of us are feeling a little bit overwhelmed. So how do they cut through that noise? Either by creating a fear-based situation, which is what the political race has now become in the U.S. It's all about how do they manage you know, yeah. the homeland security th- threats. And Trump has actually largely changed that conversation because of you know, the way he positioned himself. Yeah. And now the media is really running with it as well. So the media sort of just jumps onto anything that is even slightly sensationalist and blows it up and makes things a lot bigger than they are. And as you said, the other thing they do is they use either sex or they use titillation to try and get your baser instincts to really draw you into the conversation that you don't really want to be a part of necessarily. What gets confused a lot in the media is... They they categorize fleeting interest for belief, you know, and they sort of equate them as being the same thing. Great insight. Yeah. And so I think what ends up happening is you you might click on something because it's like, oh, I just kind of want to see it in the same way that when you're driving past a car crash. Yeah. You kind of can't help looking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to entirely change your worldview as a result of that. And I think that the challenge for any of us is to treat that type of media the same way we treat a candy bar in life, which is, you know, nobody says, okay, I'm going to have a dinner made up of seven different kinds of candy bars all put on a plate. Excellent analogy. But having a candy bar is fun. I mean, it's good. It tastes nice. Um, So I think that the challenge with media is we don't have that natural built in thing that says, you know what, you shouldn't have a plate of candy bars for dinner. Um, We know that that's wrong. But when it comes to having candy bar media for all the media we consume, you know, who's teaching the 14-year-old today that Mm. they need to do more than look at that? Yeah. And to me, like, that is a fundamental question about media literacy. And and that's one of the things that I'm most concerned about when it comes to how we're educating uh, kids. And I've got two young kids who are now getting into just seeing all of the stuff that's on the internet. And so... I wonder about who's going to take that role. And actually, it's, it's coloring some of the things that I feel like I should do as somebody who creates content in this space to try and think about like, okay, well, how am I going to teach my kids what to pay attention to? And if I can figure out a way that maybe works for that, is that something that I can offer back to hmm. other people who don't spend as much time thinking about it as I do? So one of the challenges then clearly is 
managing yourself and the inputs that are coming at you from the media. But as an influencer, we need to also be aware of the fact that if we go for the tabloid kind of attention, we're not going to build a very deep and long and meaningful connection with our audience. So we have to find a way as an influencer, we have to find a way to stand out, but not do it with the cheap thrills version, but we need to come up with some deep content and consistently produce deep and transformational content that really leaves the consumer transformed in some way. Well, I mean, let me, let me probably, let me just challenge that a little bit, right? Sure, so, sure. Go for um, it. I think that we have a responsibility to do something valuable with the attention that we earn, yeah. but there are a lot of ways to earn that attention in the first place. And if you think about providing momentary value or sharing something that is just like so quirky or so unique that people are like, oh, I just got to like check it out. It's not going to change my life, but it's, it's, I just got to check it out. Yeah, you know, I think there's a place for both kinds of content. Okay. I think the challenge is how do we avoid the same thing that marketers have done for a long time, which is take influence and transform it into evil manipulation. Right. Huh. <laughs> which marketers have been pretty damn good at for a long time. Can you think of an example where they've done that? Yeah, look at any food marketing. I mean, <laughs> you know, and in the in the US especially, and the fact that uh these products that are clearly unhealthy for you are being marketed as uh, organic and healthy. I mean, a great example is as yogurt. Yeah. Which in the US is is basically marketed as a organic healthy snack. And most of these yogurts have more sugar than a candy bar in terms of like, you know, pure number of grams of sugar in the product. Right. And so, you know, these things that really shouldn't be marketed as in any way being healthy and should be. I mean, I love candy marketing. I would love to work with candy marketers, but at least, you know, because at least like they know it's candy, you know. A Kit Kat bar is not trying to fool you into thinking that it's an organic snack. Yeah. You know, Kit Kat bars are candy. I don't feel like that's misleading. I feel like Uh that's truthful. Um, they're talking about taste, right? Point, a Snickers yeah. bar satisfies you. That's their whole campaign because, hey, you want a snack and you want something that's not going to be too light and a Snickers bar has peanuts in it. They're being upfront about it. Yeah, I get that. But like when you create marketing for these like beautifully packaged organic granola bars that are basically you know, little pressed balls of sugar, mm. that is kind of evil. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Agreed. Okay, so let's talk about action steps. So what actions can a listener take if they want to increase their influence in the market? What can they start doing today? Uh, well, I mean, I, I am a big fan of anybody who takes on the challenge of being a curator. Um, mm-hmm. I think that in a world where we all know there's content overload and there's a lot of stuff out there, there's going to be an increasing value placed on the people who sort through that stuff and tell us what to pay attention to. Great point. Because of their expertise. And so I think no matter what you know really well, whether it's photography or a particular sport or business uh, topics, the value you might be best at creating is to tell people what to pay attention to. Yes. And so I think a lot of times when we think about what we should be doing, everybody's like, well, create content, be a creator, right? It's the creator revolution. (laughs) Right. Um, And I think that what we undervalue is the people who don't feel the necessity to create something else and throw it into the the huge ocean of stuff, but rather take the time to sort through what we already have and add their insight 
to it to refine the value that it offers to us. I really, really like that point. I have not really thought about being a curator in that sense. I've known about curation, but I haven't really thought about looking at curation as a serious bona fide content activity. But now that you mention it, it totally is because it's a job. And if you curate content consistently really well, then you're going to develop a reputation for being a good content curator. And people are going to come back to you for that information because you have sifted through all the garbage and given them the best of the best. So I really like that. That's a great yeah. point. Well, and in fact, there's a there's a couple of folks doing that right now that are developing quite a reputation for it. I mean, if you look at uh, what Maria Popova does with brain pickings, it's a great example. Yep. If you look at uh, Dave Pell with Next Draft mm -hmm. or uh, the popularity of The Skim, which is like a daily newsletter on news for women. Mm -hmm. These are all examples of curators going out and saying, look, there's tons of stuff out there, but we're going to boil it down a little bit and add our insight to it. It's not like a glorified RSS feed, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. This is actually adding some value because you place insight on top of it. And so you say, this is what we pay attention to, and this is what it means. And that's okay. where you actually add value. Do you also say, this is why I think you should pay attention to this particular piece of information? Yeah. Um, and why I selected it. And, you know, so that is, that's been the intent behind these trend reports that I've done for a long time. And it's the intent behind this weekly email now as well, because I want to do that on a more frequent basis. And I'm finding the process of, of curating that and putting that together is hugely valuable for me because I'm yeah. reading, well, skimming hundreds of things and reading dozens of things every week yeah. in order to produce this list of just five things to pay attention to. Well, there's a certain art to curation as well. Clearly, there's a yeah. certain you, you need to understand your audience. You need to understand how they consume information. You need to understand what information they want to consume and in what sequence. There's a whole lot of factors I can see that are very important when it comes to curation. And it's not something to be taken lightly. It's a real skill. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the great curators, whether it's museum curators or people who are doing this online, are mostly people who know a subject really well yeah. and have come at their curatorial habit through chance. Well, they're students. They've just discovered that they're good at it. It's not like they did an MBA in curation. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, there are degrees you can do in curation if you're going to go into museum sciences and stuff like that. And some people have that training. But the vast majority of people who are doing this type of thing just realized that it's something they were good at. They're students of the craft, right? I mean, if you look at someone like Roger yeah. Federer, for example, he's not just a tennis player. He would make a perfect curator for tennis content because he knows just about anything you can ask about tennis or Sachin Tendulkar in cricket. Yeah. Uh, he is also obsessed with cricket to the point where he doesn't know much about other stuff, but he can tell you just about any statistic in cricket that goes back pretty much, you know, since the beginning. Okay, so that's great. We've got some really excellent information and actionable ideas out of this conversation. Could you share some of the books that have had the biggest impact on you? Clearly, you've read a lot of them. And could you tell us why they've had such a big impact? Well, so there's books that have had an impact for different reasons. I mean, I did an English literature degree in school, so I, you know, have read all sorts of things from screenplays to poetry to Shakespeare through to tons of business books, which I read right now. Mm -hmm. Let me share a couple that I think might be valuable for your audience. So sure. uh, one is a recent bestseller that's sold like a bazillion copies, if bazillion is a number, <laughs> called The Life-Changing Art of Tidying Up. Oh, yes. And that's really popular right now. 
And it's not a business book by any means. Yeah. But what she talks about in that book is kind of interesting because it's it's sort of like curating but for your life. Yes. And saying, like, do I have too much junk around me? Yeah. And how do I get rid of some of my junk? And one of the things she talks about, uh, which I thought was really interesting, and she's a Japanese writer, Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So some of the things that she talks about are very Japanese in their cultural origin. And so one of the things she talks about is the fact that our closets are totally full of clothes that we'll probably never wear. And when you get to a certain age, then you know your closet has a lot of stuff that you're like, I wore that you know, at one point. Maybe I'll wear it again. Maybe I'll fit into it again. Yeah. You know, Maybe I won't. But she says in order to clean your closet, you should take each item, hold it in your hand, and see if it evokes a sense of joy. Yes. Which is such an interesting way to think about whether to choose clothes or not. It's not like, would I ever wear that again? Or you yeah. kind of look at it and you're like, is this in style? Is this not in style? Do I not like orange anymore? Do I like orange? No. She says, hold it in your hands. Does, does it give you joy? And if not, Get rid of it. It kind of challenges our consumerist approach to possessions where in the West, particularly, we learn to just gather stuff and we just want to build an empire of things. But this makes you really take each thing and question it, almost look at it in a feel the tactile sensation of it in your hand and question it, take it very seriously rather than just accumulate. Yeah, that's been one book that was just interesting for me because of that. Another author that I love is the comedian Steve Martin. Oh yes. He's like one of my favorite. So good they writers. can't ignore you. Yeah, he's yeah, he's just he's prolific. Um is the only way to describe him and it's not just about acting. I mean, he's got a play called uh, Picasso at the La Panagil. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of weird combination play that basically has lots of different characters, but at one point it's like Einstein meets Elvis Presley and like, you know, there's all sorts of like, you know, intersections in in that. And the way that he he puts these pieces together and the originality of thought behind it, I find very inspirational. I mean, just the fact that like he wrote a screenplay for a film called uh, Bowfinger, which was uh, with him and Eddie Murphy. And the premise, and with so many films that are like, you know, there's going to be an earthquake and then like the, you know, dad is like the fire chief and he saves everybody. And like the, the movie is like predictable from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And this Steve Martin movie called Bowfinger is him being a film producer and filming a movie with Eddie Murphy as the star, even though Eddie Murphy doesn't know that he's in the movie. Right. And that's the premise of the film. And I'm like, who comes up with something like as crazy original as that and then creates a film around that? Like yeah. I admire originality. And there's not that much of it in the world. True originality. And mm. he's one of the people that, that has that. Well, it comes back to what you said earlier about the intersection of ideas, right? He's taken the idea of creating a film and he's come up with a completely different spin on it where he's stepped off the beaten path of the traditional form of making a movie, but he's gone and said, I'm going to put this guy as the star in the movie and he's not even going to know it. So, and he's made a movie about that. Yeah. So, you know, I find his writing to be really interesting. And and also he wrote a book, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's basically a compilation of tweets, which a lot of celebrities do. But he started this book and he's a comedian, right? He's a stand-up comedian. And so you expect that his tweets are going to be funny. And you think when you pick up this book, oh, it's going to be, you know, his funniest tweets. And I'll read that. But what it turns out to be is actually a compilation of the funniest responses from his followers to his tweets. And in the beginning of the book, he writes about how the premise of this book was different than what it turned out to be because 
he thought it was going to be basically him being a comedian because that's what he's had to do his whole life. Yeah. And as he went and started writing it, he realized that the real funny stuff was coming from his audience. And, and that was the stuff that was making him laugh out loud. Right. And that was what he pivoted to make the book about. And I think that it's such a great way of signifying what we all want to do with our audiences, which is listen to them yeah. and pr- appreciate them and respect them. And you know, what could be more respectful than one of the funniest men on the planet you know, giving his microphone to his audience? Cool. Well, I'll definitely include these books in the show notes. I'll look up that Steve Martin book. The first one was so good they can't ignore you. And then the other one was the one about the tweets. So I'll yep. find that and put that in the show notes. So, Rohit, how do listeners find out more about you? And is there anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Uh, I think the best way is my website, which is just my full name, rohitbargava.com. I would love if they feel like this conversation's been worthwhile and they like more of the insights. I would would love if they would sign up for the weekly email. That's the best way to kind of keep those insights coming. And um, once they do that, I'd love to just hear what could make that more valuable. It's sort of an experiment in progress right now. So I'm very open to hearing feedback about it. Okay. I'll definitely include a link to that as well in the show notes. So I'll include a link to your site and the listeners can sign up from there. That brings us to the end of the conversation. So thank you very much for being on the show. And I've really, really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation too. I really enjoyed that conversation with Rohit, some great insights there. One of the biggest ones for me was about intersections. Steve Jobs did it, Charlie Munger does it, and now we know that Rohit does it as well. The point he makes about intersections is that he brings together very diverse ideas and tries to develop a new way of looking at things and coming up with a different insight. So rather than creating brand new content, he creates a unique perspective or insight by bringing together different ideas from within the content that he has curated. A great example was how Steve Jobs brought the humanities and technology together to come up with Apple. And until he brought his perspective to technology, creative pursuits were unfathomable in the world of computers that was created by engineers four engineers, a world that took almost no account of the average person's customer experience. Charlie Munger does this quite a lot with investments. He reads very widely and that helps him make sound investment decisions. And Warren Buffett has repeatedly talked about how valuable he finds Charlie Munger's perspective because of this exact reason. One of the best actions that came out of this episode was the importance of thinking like a curator and collecting information in your day-to-day life. Rohit actually collects physical copies of articles and compiles them and then goes through them at the end of the year. And he finds going through the hard copies and printouts of articles helps him think. Some people prefer using mind maps and ultimately the method of article capture and curation whether you do it via technology or you do it in physical hard copy, that's something that comes down to the individual. The key point here is to actually do it. So if there's nothing else you take away from this episode, it would be this. You don't have to always create new content to make an impact on the world. You can curate content and bring new insights to that content that you have curated and impact the world through your insights on that content. Now, some related episodes, which I will link to in the show notes, are. Episode number one with Neil Patel, where we talk about branding, content, and we actually talked about Warren Buffett quite a bit in that one. We also talked about Apple. Episode number three with John Morrow on content creation, mainly in the blogging space. 
episode number six with Chris Garrett on content marketing, episode number 38 with Rand Fishkin on content and how it relates to search engine optimization, episode number 41 with Eric Enger on mobile get-in, and that was specifically around content and SEO as it relates to your mobile devices. Episode number 47 with Demian Farnworth from Copyblogger around copywriting for the web. Episode number 57 with Lisa Myers, the CEO of Verve Search, on how to sustainably create what she calls creative content. And finally, episode number 70 with Valerie Koo, the founder of the Australian Writers Centre on power stories and the eight power stories you must tell to make your business a success. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?